Hello, all my wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and I am going to apologize in advance for today's episode. My allergies have been kind of wild, so you might hear me be a little stuffy through this, so sorry. I've been trying to pick a day that I didn't sound like this to record, but it's uh, not been happening, so... I hope all of you are staying healthy. I know in addition to COVID still being a thing that it's cold and flu season. I know a lot of people I know are sick, so I hope you guys are staying healthy. Just a couple side notes here before we start today's episode. First of all, if you haven't tried and you are an Alexa owner, you can find Altitude Crime on Alexa. You will just tell her, Alexa, play the podcast Altitude Crime. I'm on Amazon Music, so it'll connect you right over to that and get Altitude Crime on your Alexa device. As I've mentioned the last couple episodes, I am doing 20% off merchandise for suggesting a unique crime on the suggested case portion of Altitude Crime. Disclaimer is a unique case. Don't give me one that's been totally nationally ranking and think that that's unique. (laughs) On kind of another note here, this is something that I am passionate about, but I am still kind of learning a lot about and I'd like to encourage you guys to learn about too. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and I've left a link on altitudecrime.com with more information about what human trafficking is, what you can do to prevent it, what you can do to acknowledge that it's happening. And you can always report an incident of human trafficking or if you think that human trafficking may be happening to your local law enforcement agency, or you can call the U.S. Department of Homeland Security tip line. They can be reached at 866-347-2423, or you can call the National Crime Stoppers tips link at 1-800-222-TIPS, which is... 8477. So today we are hitting on an interesting true crime dynamic, and that's of killers who commit suicide prior to arrest. Now, this story is a popular one and has been told in many different places, and it's often told in the same way, kind of back to front, starting with finding the murderers to investigation to the background of the killer. But I want to show some escalation in what happened here that I feel like is often kind of overlooked. So we're going to be talking about a few different crimes at the beginning, and I will try to kind of separate those out, and we will go ahead and get into today's episode. The first crime in the series of incidents that we're going to talk about today happened on August 27th, 1985. This took place at 2775 Vickers Drive in Colorado Springs' northeast side of town. Now, at this location was a construction site of the Bohannon Development Apartment Building complex. And the incident happened at 1.30 in the morning. The security guard on the scene was Keith Lee Erickson, and he saw someone walking through the site and approached them to see what they were doing. The person, he would then find out, had a rifle concealed at the leg and immediately aimed the weapon at Keith when he approached him. While the robber threatened to shoot him, he ended up striking him twice with the butt of the rifle. 
He also smashed Keith's radio with the rifle, giving him no way to call for help. There was a second security guard at the site, but would have been way across the site from Keith, and Keith would have been unable to really holler and get his attention. The robber then took Keith's wallet from his pocket, and after kind of rifling through it, put it back. But he did take his weapon, which was a 357 pistol, and then he left the scene. Keith was left with a two-inch gash behind his right ear, but he was alive. It would take 11 stitches to sew him up. Keith was really confident that he could make an identification if police were able to track down the suspect. He gave a description of the suspect. He was a white male, about 5 foot 10. He had shoulder-length brown hair and was probably in his early 20s. He had on jeans, a light-colored t-shirt, and a shiny blue jacket. While police were not able to find a suspect very immediately for Keith to take a look at, this description of the jacket would come up in a later murder investigation. With no answers in this robbery, another incident would happen about seven months later in February of 1986. Sometime between February 7th and 9th, there was a burglary at the 7900 block of Topeka Drive in Cascade, Colorado. Now, Cascade is about 16 minutes northwest of the outside of Colorado Springs. At this home, the door was kicked in and a 45, a shotgun, a rifle, and six other weapons were taken from the home. There would be another burglary just later that month on February 22nd that took place at the 3200 block of North Institute Street in Old Colorado City, Colorado Springs. This home was broken into sometime between 7.30 and 8.30 at night, and the door was also kicked in. A 22 caliber and two more weapons, as well as camera equipment, were taken from this home. These burglaries and robbery would lead up to a harrowing scene that police would respond to on May 17, 1986. Very early that Saturday morning, firefighters responded to a burning building that ended up holding a deadly secret. And this would actually be a scene that our favorite homicide detective, Lieutenant Joe Kenda, would end up working. The Grandview Lounge was located in a shopping center at 5672 North Union Boulevard. The victims of this attack were actually the end of the Friday night drinking crowd, being in the bar from May 16th into the early morning of May 17th. The scene initially looked like a robbery gone wrong. The perpetrator had killed two customers and the bartender in the process of robbing the bar. The victims found at the bar were 46-year-old Joanne McNamara, 29-year-old bartender Debbie Green, and 52-year-old James Rupke. James had been shot three times and would have died before even falling off his bar stool. Investigators would find that the girls, Debbie and Joanne, had shots all over their body. They most likely were initially injured while running away from the scene. Being that their killer would have been near the entrance, and they would have been cornered from getting out of the bar, the two women went to the ladies' room and tried to barricade themselves inside. They would be fatally shot inside the bathroom. After killing the three people in the bar, the perpetrator tried to hide the scene. They stole money from the register and then poured three bottles of liquor and one bottle of lighter fluid to set the building on fire. And to some extent, the plan worked. It did get rid of a lot of evidence but it still did leave investigators with three bodies and a lot to work with. Colorado Springs police would find more victims as they worked to secure the area around the bar. 
There was a convenience store next door to the bar, which was a quick way. Police noticed that a glass door at the front of the double doors of the store had been broken in. Inside the store, police would find the clerk working at the time, 22-year-old Sandra Howard, as well as her sister that was visiting her in the store, 19-year-old Elaine Sandeldecker. Sandra had just started working graveyard in the last few days to help support her three children. The bodies of the two girls were found behind the counter. Investigators deduced that they had locked the door, but the perpetrator used their gun to break the glass and walk in. He made the girls kneel behind the counter and, despite their cooperation, shot them execution-style in the back of the head, three times each. In one small piece of solace for the family, at least the two girls would have been immediately dead. Money was stolen from both registers at the Quickway. All five victims were from Colorado Springs, and the murders took place over the course of only about 20 minutes. Being that there was money missing from registers at both locations, this immediately led to a robbery motive. Could there have not been enough money at the bar and the perpetrator decided to go to the convenience store? However, there was still a sticking question in investigators' minds about this. The scene was really not normal to robbery cases. Conflicts in robberies usually only happen when the perpetrator doesn't get money or someone interrupts the robbery. And if robbery was the motive, it was a sad one. The perpetrator would have gotten only about $233, less than $50 per person that they had killed. So investigators wondered, were one of these people a target and all the others were collateral damage? Was this someone who just wanted to kill people? Was the bar a sketchy place? It left investigators with more questions than answers. They did get some answers from looking over the scenes, though. It was obvious that the weapon was a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. There were 22 caliber casings found at both scenes and outside in the parking lot. There were 15 to 20 casings in the bar alone, which meant that the killer had come prepared with extra ammo. The police did have some initial people to question. When she found out that the bar was on fire, the Grandview's owner, Sonia Riley, had come to the scene. So police started with her. Deborah was her new bartender. She had actually been working at the Colorado Springs Country Club and had moved to the bar just a few weeks before the incident. Deborah had two kids she was supporting and worked the bartending shift to help provide for them. Joanne was actually Sonia's best friend, and James was Joanne's new boyfriend, who Sonia had met that night, and she really liked him and he seemed like a real gentleman. She said none of the victims were someone that could have drawn a situation like this to themselves. And the bar was a very cheer-style neighborhood bar with lots of regulars. There wasn't anything odd going on there, and there weren't sketchy characters that hung out there. While police investigated the scene, they got a huge piece of information. There was actually one person that escaped the killings. 50-year-old Robert Kuratek had ran from the bar, and he was found about a half mile away from the scene. He had gotten a gunshot wound to the head, but it had actually only fractured his skull versus killing him. He probably had passed out as soon as he was hit, and the killer most likely probably thought he was dead. Once Robert had regained consciousness, he ran out of the bar. So police were pretty excited here because they have an eyewitness to this event. They can get a suspect, they can get an arrest, they can get justice for what has happened. But that's not how investigations work. The gunshot to Robert's head affected his memory. 
According to the Associated Press's reporting on this incident, quote, he heard a gunshot and the next thing he knew he was on the floor, unquote. That would be the only thing he would remember from the entire incident. Having no one left to question, the next thing that police looked into was new technology in robbery investigations. Remember, this is the 80s, so concealed robbery cameras had just been installed in a number of stores in Colorado Springs by police for the first time. The cameras would basically trigger when a certain large bill was taken from the register at the store. They weren't 100%. There was a possibility the camera wouldn't turn on, or it could have been tripped by something prior to the killings. But Lieutenant Kenda knew they needed to take a look at it. So he contacted now-retired robbery detective Bill Schneckel, and they were in luck. There was a camera at this specific quickway, but while there was a camera there, that didn't mean they had an answer yet. Again, remember, it's the 80s. They had to develop the film from the camera first. Once the film was developed, there were some pictures that weren't helpful, but there was one, a picture of a man, an unremarkable man, one with no distinguishing characteristics or anybody that you would ever think twice of, but they knew he was the guy because he had a gun in his hand. It was a profile picture of his face, but for people that knew this man, investigators knew that they would be able to identify him. So now that police have a picture of their suspect, they now need an identity. They started asking other people that worked at or frequented the bar to see if they had ever seen this man. None of the patrons that they talked to could identify the man in the picture, but they did talk to cocktail waitress Kay Hazlett, who had actually just gotten off that night prior to the killings happening, and she recognized the man right away. He actually came to the bar while she was there that night. And the thing that stuck out to her was his shiny blue jacket. She said that he had a drink by himself and seemed kind of awkward. Seemed like he was kind of on alert and nervous and just kind of was hanging out. And he was still there when she left. Investigators would now know that he was there scoping out the place. He was getting the lay of the land. In pursuing a robbery angle, investigators knew that most robbers live close to where they rob and they attack on foot so that they can get away quickly or down side streets, things like that, that you can't do in a car. So they decided they were going to look very heavily in the one mile radius from the crime scene. But this would be a daunting task. The area around the bar and the convenience store is a very heavy residential area, so it would take a long time to canvas. So all of the police department got on deck so they could get an identity for this killer. They were determined to knock on every door of every house, company, etc. in that area. And this was a large-scale search. We're talking several thousand people living in this one-mile radius. According to homicide detective Lieutenant Brian Ritz, he said that There had never been something done like this before. But the thing about their killer was he seemed confident. And this made police worry even more that something else would happen soon. So they had to commit this manpower, not only to do it for the victims they already had, but also to protect the rest of the city. The day that they started the canvas at about a thousand residents in, they still had no answers. But one detective had a great idea. He goes to a pizza shop nearby, thinking that the delivery people are familiar with people that live in the area. And actually, a delivery guy at this pizza shop was able to identify the man in the photo. While he couldn't remember his name, he could remember he lived at the Berkshire Apartments. 
In the meantime, another officer got a hit at a home in the area. The person that lived in the home didn't know the person, but had her friend that was hanging out at the house look at the picture, and that woman did. She knew the suspect from plumbing school, and she was able to give police his name with confidence. When they look up the name, they find that this person lives at the Berkshire Apartments, same as the pizza delivery driver had said. So at this point, they have two identifications on who they would find out to be Gilbert Archibek Jr. Archibek was 29 years old and came from a pretty normal upbringing. His dad was retired Air Force and had served 26 years and had reached the rank Sergeant Major. Archibek was the second born child and he had three brothers. He went to Harrison High School, he was a lifelong Boy Scout member, and actually was even an Eagle Scout. At the time, he was working at Olson Plumbing and was a plumber's apprentice. From what his co-workers had said, he was a good worker, he was reliable, and overall just an okay guy. His apartment at the Berkshire Apartments was close to the bar and the store, being just a few blocks away. The police worked on this investigation quickly. They were able to gain this information by Sunday, May 17, 1986, just the day after the murders happened. So that afternoon, they went to Archibald's apartment at 2070 Dortmund Drive, apartment 514 and surveilled the apartment that afternoon leading up to them reaching out to Archibald. They also worked to get all of the neighbors in the building out quietly and safely, most of them coming out of their apartments in their pajamas. They ended up calling the apartment at 2 in the morning. They had SWAT in position in the hallway outside the front door of the apartment as well as at the back windows. So the police negotiator makes the call. But police get a surprise when a woman named Jill answers the phone. This scares them. They weren't aware of her, and now Archibald could have a hostage if he chose to. 32-year-old Jill Capes was Archibald's girlfriend, and they had known each other for about four years. Now, depending on where you look, the state of their relationship is kind of different. Some places will say they were on again, off again, while others say they were pretty committed, but they were living together at the time and were supposedly talking marriage. It was getting pretty serious. But for Jill, this call from police would be the first she would hear that anything had happened, that Archibald was involved in anything. So they ask Jill if Archibald is there and she gives him the phone and police tell him on the phone that they know it was him, they've identified him, and he's on the hook for five first degree murder charges. Now if he was convicted of these, it would basically be five life imprisonments by Colorado law and while he could have the possibility of parole, it was probably pretty slim chances that he would ever get out of jail. So Archibald tells him, yeah, I'll surrender. But then they start to hear a scuffle. They hear Jill kind of, you know, being, what's going on? Why the police here? And then they hear a gunshot. Now, from outside the apartment, they're not sure if he has shot himself or if he's shot Jill. So SWAT enters the apartment immediately. They bust down the door. They get in there as soon as that shot has rang out. And they find Jill in the bedroom alive and screaming, obviously. And they find Archibald in the bathroom. He had shot himself with a 357 caliber revolver. And although the gun was a 357, he had used 38 caliber bullets to shoot himself and was dead at the scene. 
Needless to say, investigators were not able to get answers from the horse's mouth. However, they were able to do a couple of searches of Archibald's apartment that would result in some answers. And in connecting the earlier burglaries and robbery I talked about to Archibald as well as the murders. The first search happened on that Sunday. In that search, police found three stolen weapons. One was a Ruger 22 semi-automatic, which was confirmed to be the gun used in the murders. And the other was a 357 Magnum, the one that he committed suicide with. And the third gun found that day was a 45 caliber handgun. They would do a second search on the following Tuesday, and in that search, they found a rifle and a shotgun. The 45 shotgun and rifle were all traced to the burglary that happened in early February between the 7th and 9th. And while there were six other weapons taken in that burglary, they were still unaccounted for. The 22 was traced to the burglary that happened on February 22nd, but the two other weapons and camera equipment that were also taken from that home were not accounted for. And the 357 was traced to the August 1985 robbery at the construction site. That was the handgun that was stolen from Keith, the security guard at the scene. While they connected Archibald to these other burglaries and robbery, they also noticed that the robbery in which he got the 357 handgun at the construction site, well, that construction site was across the street from the bar and the convenience store that he would eventually murder his victims at. Reactions to this crime were mixed. While there was a lot of horror in the city over what had happened, there was a lot of confusion for people that knew Gilbert Archibald. His parents did not have any indicators of what would have made him commit these murders. His dad, Gilbert Archibald, was 53 at the time of the killings, and his mom, Alice, was 48. And Archibald was known to visit them about once a week, and they'd actually seen him about three days prior to the killings and saw nothing out of the norm. According to the Associated Press, Archibald's dad had said, quote, I searched myself and I wonder, did I do something wrong with this guy? Unquote. Archibald's employer at Olson, Michael Trapp, couldn't believe that this had happened. There was no indicator that Archibald would do something like this. And Archibald had been around police enforcement, too, on a very casual basis. His employer, Olson, was actually behind one of the police stations in town, and patrolman Ralph Sanchez had ran into him on numerous occasions just kind of walking in and out of buildings. According to the Associated Press, patrolman Sanchez said, quote, I just talked with him a week and a half ago. It was a small talk conversation. He seemed to be the most happy-go-lucky guy I'd ever seen. I've been here on the force 12 and a half years and seen a lot of homicides, but this one takes the cake and I knew him. You tend to ask yourself what drives a person to do something like that, unquote. And with very little answers, the families of the victims had to lay their loved ones to rest. 22-year-old Sandra Howard and her 19-year-old sister, Elaine Sandeldecker, were the daughters of Lonnie and Cecilia Green, and they were two of eight children in a very close family and very close siblings. According to Erin Emery's reporting for the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph, at their services, Elder Jack Yonkers of the Jehovah's Witnesses said, quote, life holds no guarantee for tomorrow, unquote. He had actually seen the sisters just six hours prior to when they were killed, and they had been making plans to come over so that his daughter could perm their hair. Memorial contributions were taken for the children of the crime, and another was created to collect funds for all of the victims' families. With little information to go on, there were multiple theories that came up about the killings. 
While we now know that Archibek had committed the robbery and burglaries mentioned earlier in the episode, he had only had two minor criminal offenses on his actual record. One theory is that for whatever reason, he started killing, and once he started killing, he kept going on to hide his identity. Since he lived in the area, he could have been recognized by one or multiple people at the scenes, or the girls at the convenience store could have seen him walk into the bar. There could have been any reason for him to get rid of people that could have identified him. Lieutenant Kenneth Bands of the Colorado Springs Police Department likened Archibald to having a sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality, where basically he just had these two kind of versions of himself. But some people say that it was just something that was just inside of him, that he was hiding from people. One person that felt like this was police chief at the time, Jim Munger. Uh, Remember, we mentioned him in our last episode about Diane Hood. He did not believe in the whole Jekyll and Hyde stance, and only that Archibald just had something inside him that made him capable of this. According to the Associated Press, Munger had called the crime, quote, the most vicious murders I have ever seen, unquote. Something that would come up in the investigation was that Archibald was a user of marijuana and of cocaine. Archibald's level of cocaine usage differs depending on what source you're reading. In Jill's questioning after his suicide, uh, she said that the cocaine habit had increased to an addiction and it could have caused a motive that would have been either basically a mental break or it could have been a financial motive. But in other places, they say that he used cocaine, but it wasn't such a terrible habit. It was just occasional and wouldn't have affected him. That's just another in the long line of answers that we will never receive. Okay, guys, you know I have lots of thoughts on this one, so hang tight. Using number one. In cases like this, it makes you realize how little room there is for an error in an investigation like this. Just imagine if the police had not committed to doing this large-scale search. They could have been looking for Archibald for weeks. He could have killed more people. You never know what could have happened. And it really makes me realize how much pressure is on investigators because things like this are not linear and they are definitely more of an art than a science, especially when you don't have a lot of initial information to go off of. Musing number two, it had to be so hard for our eyewitness Robert who had gotten the gunshot wound to the head that affected his memory. You have to think you would want to help so much and be able to say something that would give investigators something to go off of, but... To be struggling with your memory and have nothing there to give would have to just be so beyond frustrating and just an awful feeling. Musing number three. So while there can be some indication that these killings came from out of nowhere, it really was not in Archibald's background at all. You do have to realize that there was only nine months between the first burglary and the robberies and the murders. And He only had two minor things on his record, but it makes you wonder what else he could have done. Keith, the security guard uh, who had his 357 stolen from him at the construction site in August of 1985, he had 20 years of training in the military and he commented on how easily Archibald was able to just like drop him and disarm him and like just be able to get him you know, basically playing into what he needed. And you have to wonder if he had been in training somewhere or if he had been doing other crimes that we just don't know that he'd been connected to because it seems like he did it in a very methodical kind of way. Musing number four. 
So you could say that there was a big overlooking in Jill being in the apartment when they went to get Archie back, but I'm kind of wondering if maybe she had just not been on the lease and, you know, anybody that they talked to about him had seen him alone. So while this could be kind of an oversight, I, I wouldn't read into it too, too much. Musing number five, I want to hear how you guys feel about these kind of cases. In the episode about this case, Kenda applauded Archibald for basically saving the taxpayers' money. But I sometimes feel that these cases leave even more questions than in cases that are unsolved because you have that hint of an answer, but not the whole piece. So please reach out to me and tell me what you think of cases like this. You can reach me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime, and there's also an email listed at AltitudeCrime.com in the contact section. Musing number six. This is just one of those things that I just had not really thought about until I was researching this case. Um, Them talking about doing multiple searches of the apartment. Well, obviously, first off, this is to be thorough. You know, people have places they hide stuff in their house and whatever. But the thing that I hadn't thought of was like, you've never been in this apartment. Like, you don't know your way around. You don't like know you know, what furniture is easily movable, what isn't, like, it's just something I hadn't thought of that on top of that you're kind of maybe don't know exactly what you're looking for, you also just don't know the lay of the land. Musing number seven, I wanted to touch briefly on my process of covering a case when it's also a homicide hunter case, um, which is, of course, Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Because I want you guys to know that I don't just, like, watch the show and regurgitate it to you. Like, it just becomes one of the many sources that I look at. Now, granted, they tend to have more detail, and I tend to be able to make a little bit longer episodes because there's some pieces in there that aren't reported on necessarily in a more dry you know, newspaper article kind of way. But I just want to let you guys know, like, I'm not just regurgitating to you. You are getting some information that's not reflected in the show. And I honestly also did not mean to do two back-to-back. The Diane Hood case I did last week was also on Homicide Hunter, and that was not intentional by any means. I do try to spread them out a little bit. So I just wanted to give you guys my rationale on that and know that you're still getting, like, extra information on top of just watching the show. Musing number eight, cases like this make me think about timing and coincidences. Like if the homeowner in the canvas had not asked her friend that was just hanging out there to look at the picture of Archibald, had they been, would they have been able to identify him? Or Kay Hazlett, the cocktail waitress that got off work just right before the murders happened. Like she might have not been alive if she worked another couple hours. It's just... The coincidence of things like this is just astounding to me. And musing number nine, just as a little piece of information, this was a hard one to cover. It's hard when you have these kind of mass shootings that are out of nowhere. But on top of it, one of the hardest parts to me was covering Sandra and Elaine's murder at the gas station. You have to know that they had heard gunshots and whatnot, and they were trying to do their due diligence of locking the door and trying to make themselves safe. And 
it was just like this collision course of fate for them that that's not how it was going to happen. So it's just one of those things that makes me realize, like I've always said that, you know, it's easy to kind of get into the morbidity of these things, but you have to always realize that these are real people with real feelings that had real fear. They have families that are hurting. And I just wanted to recenter and bring back to, that's why I cover true crime is to tell those stories and to try to give those people some dignity in times that it was taken away from them. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. This was a bit of a tough case today, and I appreciate you spending part of your week with me to learn about it. If you haven't already, please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you didn't notice, I did put out a brief update a few days ago about the Gannon Stock case. There's been some updates to Letitia Stock's hearing schedule. And if you didn't know that came out, it's probably because you're not following or subscribing and you didn't get the notification that there was some midweek content. I am continuing to cover that case as it happens, so you will be seeing some more midweek content coming out as that moves through the court system. As I said earlier, if you have an Alexa device, you can find Altitude Crime on Alexa. You will just tell her, Alexa, play the podcast Altitude Crime, and she will do that because that's her job. As always, you can find source materials for this episode at altitudecrime.com. I also have on both it and social a map of the area of where the bar and the convenience store was in relation to Archibald's apartment. Uh, So if you want to look at that a little bit more closely, there's a larger version of that on the website. And again, educate yourself. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. Please take a moment to go to altitudecrime.com and take a look at the link that I left there with information about human trafficking, what you can do, how you can identify it, and really what a terrible problem it is in our society that I feel like we just don't talk about enough. Well, thank you so much for spending part of your week with me, and I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 41, The Massacre on Union Boulevard, The Gilbert Archibald Killings, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.